Acts 24, beginning in verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when they had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way, and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an account accusation should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Let's pray that prayer. We pray, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Uh, when I was living in Philadelphia all those years, it seemed like I was constantly on jury duty. Uh, the sheer amount of crime may have had something to do with it, but I think part of it was also makeup for the fact that Georgia was always pregnant and weaseling her way out of it, and so I think they would call me down instead. Uh, and it seemed like it was about once a year, sometimes every other year, and it was only every other year sometimes because I, every time I got chosen and actually had to serve on a jury, they would give you a little extra time off, but it did seem like I got selected quite a bit, seemed to me. And I think it was especially true when I was in seminary. I'm not entirely sure why, but I think it was because the prosecution assumed, well, this guy believes in a holy and just God, and surely, you know, he, he'll be all for applying the law. And I think that the defense always looked and figured, oh, maybe he's a bleeding heart and believes in a purely merciful God or something. And so they kind of split the difference and went and threw me on the jury. Um, and I initially found jury duty very interesting. Uh, and yet I became very cynical by the end because the, the very final case that I ever served on ended up in a hung jury. And it was frustrating because it was such a very clear case. 
Uh, it was a drug possession case, nothing major, uh, supposed to be a one-day trial and, and relatively easy, and yet it became one of the most frustrating days of my life because the defense was awful and almost non-existent, and yet we had three very stubborn people on this jury who refused to believe any of the cops on principle, and in spite of the fact that they do ask that specific question during jury selection. So we went home as 12 angry men and women still. And at the end of the case, what was interesting was they brought the prosecutor and the defense attorney back into the jury room because both of them were apparently new. And uh, they asked us for our feedback, which was kind of weird, like, you know, giving a review. And uh, so these are the official spokeswomen for the state and for the defense asking us how how we do. And it's kind of like, well, obviously not great because a hung jury is pretty clear evidence that things went wrong. Um, And I didn't have the nerve to call out these three particular jury members, but if I had to do it over again, I would have told them that you messed up in the jury selection process, that the case was completely unwinnable because the setup was flawed. It was crazy because nobody in that jury room was disputing any of the facts. For the most part, it really came down to they didn't like the law as it stood and they didn't like cops. So it was guaranteed to fail from the beginning because you had three jurors who were not interested in really doing the right thing and applying the laws they were told to do, and one of which refused to even engage in conversation with us. So all that's to say is I learned that no justice system is perfect. Um, Rome was no exception, and today's passage is living proof of that because today Paul finally gets his first serious formal hearing before a Roman court. And Lysias the Tribune, I mean, remember he had almost subjected Paul to trial by whipping, and Paul kind of wiggled out of that one, and then Lysias put him in front of the Sanhedrin. That didn't work out so good. Uh, And then, you know, Paul had been arrested and beaten some years back in Philippi, but he was released the next day. So this is the first true civil courtroom drama in the book so far. This is episode one of Law and Order. And, And it becomes clear right away that the Roman justice thing is going to be hard to come by because the world doesn't fight fair. They tend to stack the deck against you. So Paul goes into this thing already losing, in a sense, kind of like my last jury trial in Philly. The deck is not stacked in favor of a just decision or even really any kind of decision at all by the end because the forum is all wrong because the charges are really not based in Roman law. The judge is open to bribes. Uh, We see that especially in next week's passage. And the prosecution is unfair, dishonest, misleading, and unethical. And they build a purely circumstantial case. But perhaps more importantly, Paul is at a disadvantage because while his enemies have a spokesman, he has none. It's not a bad defense team. It's a no defense team. Paul has no spokesman. He has no advocate in this room. He's all alone with no one in his corner. So the case is seemingly doomed from the outset. It's not a fair fight. And let's be honest, the world does not fight fair. Who said life was fair? Where is that written? Princess Bride, somebody knows that. Paul's position is not unique. We see it a lot in scripture, and I think it's true for believers in every age. Uh, The world's most brilliant spokesmen are not typically on our side, and they don't like to fight fair. So as believers, how do you fight in an unfair fight? What if blind justice can see through the blindfold and doesn't like the look of you? How do you appeal for justice when the world's idea of justice is very different from ours? I think Paul's going to give us something of a tutorial here, but first we're going to see how the odds get stacked against him. Paul actually had it pretty easy for the first few days in Caesarea, if you remember. He's technically being held in Herod's Praetorium, but remember, this was not exactly San Quentin 
or Alcatraz, right? This is not prison prison. This is the governor's mansion, right? Felix's house. And Paul had arrived like a celebrity five days ago with a military escort and a letter of recommendation from the chief of police in Jerusalem. He came in with everything but a marching band. So Paul had some things going for him, but his enemies are still plotting. They haven't forgotten about him, and so it's only a matter of time before they do show up in Caesarea to level charges at him. The only difference is that they would have to accuse Paul not on purely religious grounds, but on Roman grounds. And that would require some creativity on their part, legal gymnastics, such that only a lawyer could do. So it says, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, and they laid before the governor their case against Paul. No one can accuse Ananias of being stupid. Uh, It's really good to have a hired spokesman, right? That's why the president has a press secretary. You don't want to field all these things yourself. There's wisdom in knowing also when you need a lawyer. Reverend Green told me earlier this year I was dealing with issues with the IRS. He told me I should hire a lawyer. I haven't done it yet. It may eventually come to that. It was George's grandmother, I believe, who insisted that I call a lawyer when I was being sued a few years ago. It's the only time I ever had to do that, but I'm glad I did. The legal world is, frankly, a nightmare of procedures and regulations, and it takes someone almost as slimy as the system itself to work in the system. So Ananias and the rest of Paul's enemies hire a spokesman, this guy Tertullus. We don't know much about him, except that his name is definitively Roman. Sounds Roman, doesn't it? Think of it, Maximus, Gaius, Claudius, Augustus, Tertullus, you know. And it kind of turns the tables on the stereotypes, huh? because the Jews hire an Italian lawyer. It's kind of bizarre. Um, anyway, like any lawyer, Tertullus knows who butters his bread. You've got to keep the judge happy above all else. So what does he say? Uh, when he had been summoned, Paul, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying... Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. May I just start by saying this, that Tertullus is so full of crap. Um, Tertullus is like an ultimate brown noser. This, this was apparently very typical language for Roman attorneys, but nonetheless irritating. Luke says right here he began accusing Paul. And yet here we are, three verses into the accusation, and he still hasn't finished kissing Felix's <clears throat> uh, ring yet. Excellent Felix. Peaceful Felix. Wise Felix. Patient Felix. Great reformer Felix. Please graciously give us just a few minutes of your time. Now, in the past when I read this book, I just kind of figured that Felix maybe was legit like a good guy, you know? Like he must be a halfway decent governor in spite of being a Roman. I mean, after all, he hadn't beaten Paul or anything like that. He's letting him stay in his house, right? And everyone in the room speaks so kindly toward him, right? Heck, his name even means happy, right? How bad could he be? And then I checked out Wikipedia because that's half the job of a pastor. And boy, was I naive. The fact is, this guy Felix is no prize. Uh, His name may mean happy, but the more you read, the more of a joke that seems to become. In reality, he had a terrible reputation. He had become the governor of Judea a few years before this uh, through the influence of his brother, who was close to the emperor Claudius. And one of his earliest acts as governor was having the Jewish high priest assassinated. 
In other words, Ananias' predecessor had been whacked by this guy. This is in spite of the fact that the predecessor, whose name was Jonathan, had been an early supporter of Felix. He was like a contributor to the Felix for Governor campaign. But then he criticized Felix about something or was resistant to something. So Felix had Jonathan killed in the temple during a festival. And the goons he hired to do it were called the Assassins. And you may remember that name because that's the same biker gang that the Tribune mentioned and the one that he figured Paul must be a member of. This guy Felix was such a dirtbag that when the assassins turned rogue, he basically declared war on them too, so he killed hundreds of them, along with a lot of other locals. He encouraged fighting between Judeans and Syrians, also that he would have an excuse when he brought his troops in to quell the violence that he could plunder both sides. He was open to bribes and didn't mind working with criminals, so crime soared in the region during his tenure. He is basically remembered by history for having presided over one of the most lawless periods in the history of that province. One could easily argue that Felix's corruption and incompetence were almost certainly a factor in the Jewish revolt a number of years later, just a short, few short years later. And ultimately, this led to the destruction of the nation and Jerusalem. Felix was so corrupt that even when Rome ended up at the end of his tenure in a couple of years, as we're going to see next week, he goes back home to Rome, but he goes there to be put on trial. He was ultimately acquitted because he had powerful friends, but even Nero considered him something of a bad egg. He later had his influential brother executed, in fact. All that to say, it takes some kind of stones to express gratitude to Felix as a great reformer of the nation who has bettered everyone's lives. <laughs> Tertullus has it coming out of his ears. So we know that the presiding judge is corrupt. We already know that. It's very unfair. But how about the prosecution's case? Other than being a suck-up, is Tertullus's case a fair one? Let's see. Verse 4, But to detain you no further, or, uh, you know, to weary you no further, as some translations. I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Actually, there's interesting, if you look in your footnotes, there's a little sliver of here that, that gets left out. Verse 7 gets cut. But I actually, I, I'm going to read six through, 6 through 7 real quick, including that. It says, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him, and we would have judged him according to our law. But the chief captain Lysias came, and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come before you. I wanted to include that little bit of a longer version to give you the full flavor of Tertullus' argument before we break it down into the basic elements. Tertullus says that Paul is a plague, a very common ad hominem attack. We all love to compare people to our physical ailments. It's where we get things like pain in the neck, right? More importantly, Tertullus says that Paul instigates riots, not just here in Jerusalem, but all over the empire. Now, this is the only intelligent charge to make in front of a Roman governor, and we've discussed it before. Rome has no patience for rioting. It's, one, it's the one unforgivable crime because it destabilizes the peace that they have built. If you don't 
remember world history. I mean, they call it the Pax Romana, right? The Roman peace. It was an incredible thing, something the Romans were rightly proud of. They had subjugated dozens of smaller kingdoms and empires and held them together in a cohesive unit. Riots undermine that. Riots mean that an area has become ungovernable, and in Rome's eyes, ungovernable people have to be killed. So Tertullus hits Paul with the one charge that would make any governor's ears perk up, especially if the governor is ruling in Judea, which is already one of the most rocky and unstable outposts in the empire. It's a high crime area. It's right on the eastern border. It's a trouble spot. It's like New Jersey. Who would want to govern this place? So Tertullus is framing this as the Jews snitching on another would-be assassin. This guy, Paul, will destabilize the entire empire. We're here as good citizens to make sure he doesn't. He calls Paul a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. It's a funny name for a Christian missionary. Ringleaders never seem to lead anything good, do they? It's just sort of the the badness of the ring they lead is sort of just implied by the title. But... I I wanted to include that verse 7 in the reading because if if that verse is original, if that's intentional, it makes Tertullus' case even more audacious because if you look again at the footnote, he's basically telling the governor that they would have gladly done their civic duty and gotten rid of Paul themselves. Look, my clients would have been happy, more than happy, to kill Paul and save you all this trouble. Uh, He is a rioter, but he also violated the temple and our own local laws, you know, and we were fully prepared to kill him off a week ago. But Lysias came and made a scene. It was Lysias who inflicted great violence on us and took Paul away. And now, my dear Felix, we're here wasting your time instead. I'm sorry, it's not our fault. This is a shady character, Tertullus. Not a name that I have remembered. He's an easily forgotten biblical character, but definitely one of the most unlikable. He has accused Paul of crimes against Rome and the Jews, and if we accept verse 7, he even sneaks in an accusation against Lysias the Tribune. And Felix, being a corruptible guy, may very well begin to suspect his own top commander in the region. It's funny how one lie usually necessitates other lies. Cover-ups usually make crimes worse, and it's not enough for this guy to attack Paul. He has to attack Lysias because Lysias protected Paul. And spoke well of him. And what Tertullus is doing is really almost as dangerous as a riot would be because he is sowing disunity and mistrust among the Roman authorities. And then the accusers make themselves the heroes of their own story, don't they? We heroically stopped Paul from profaning the temple. We practically saved the empire, Felix. And then Lysias showed up and stopped us. We might have had a chance, but he's always around. And finally, Tertullus says, all right, Enough from me. Talk to him yourself. You'll see what we're saying is true. And all the Jews chime right in by, yeah, what he said. And the whole case is very slimy. It's underhanded. It's dishonest. It's disgusting. But it's a heck of a lot smoother coming from an attorney, a professional spokesman, isn't it? If you remember, back when Paul actually faced the Sanhedrin, the only response they could come up with to his his defense was to resort to violence, to have somebody hit him. Now, violence doesn't often win arguments. In fact, it usually is the the last resort when arguments are no longer working. Uh, They hit Paul because they couldn't come up with words. But now, for the first time, the Jews have hired a professional spokesman, an attorney, someone to come up with a charge that'll stick. And the charge basically boils down to one core item, that trouble and Paul are often found together. 
It's a case of guilt by association. Now, I don't think the world has changed that much. I think the case against the Christian faith is often largely circumstantial in that very way. Trouble seems to follow us wherever we go. Now, here stands Paul. The case is unfair, the judge is not a fair man, and even the gallery is against him. There's not one person in the room on his side. Paul has no attorney. None of his friends are permitted in the hall. His sister and nephew are mysteriously MIA, and Lysias, his only Roman ally, is back in Jerusalem. And in a sense, he's on trial now, too, even though he's not here to speak for himself. It's an unfair fight. How do you fight in an unfair fight? How do you defend yourself when you have no spokesman? And there's no public defender. Well, here's what Paul does. He says, when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. I'm going to stop there just for a second. I want you to notice that Paul does not suck up to Felix. At first blush, it sounds like he's mimicking Tertullus, but he is not. He merely acknowledges that Felix is the governor and that he's been there for a while. That's all he actually says. He says that he will cheerfully make a defense, and he will, but not because Felix is a great man. I think it's worth noticing that Paul acknowledges the legitimacy of Felix as his judge, not because Paul is a citizen and entitled to Roman protection, but because Felix is the governor of Judea, which is his homeland. Paul is really just demonstrating he is not a revolutionary. He recognizes the Roman authorities. And then he begins his formal defense. Verse 11, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. Now, two things strike me about this part. One is that so little time has passed since Paul first entered Jerusalem, and I think it's easy to miss that. I mean, he met James like just less than two weeks ago. It's been a crazy 12 days, but hardly enough time to start a major movement, and I think that's Paul's point. He's saying he couldn't possibly be a ringleader of anything dangerous when I only got here a couple days ago. But the second thing that strikes you is that Paul is speaking the truth. He wasn't disputing with anyone. Not in the temple, not in the city, not in the synagogues. And that's amazing because that means he treated Jerusalem very differently than every other city that he's been visiting. Disputing in public was Paul's specialty, but for once he's actually innocent of the charge. For once I was just quietly going about my business. And that's when trouble got started. Trouble may have followed me, but I wasn't looking for it. Not this time. And then Paul uses two words that you should never use on the witness stand. I confess. Verse 14, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Bold move by Paul. Confess something, but only if it's something harmless. In Paul's case, The story has the advantage of being true. Paul says, look, I'm a Jew. I always have been, still am, always will be. The heart of this debate, says Paul, comes down to the hope of the resurrection. Paul says some of his accusers even acknowledge this. We'll see more on this in just a little bit. 
But anticipating their next question, Paul wants to explain what he was doing there in the first place. Verse 17, Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So Paul claims he actually went to town to present alms to his nation. Not to start a fight, but to bring money for the poor and to make offerings. I don't think Paul's making this up. It's the first we're hearing about the alms, but it fits in with the rest of his story because we know that Paul has compassion for his people. But he also doubles down on his defense. I was in the temple. I was purified. There were no crowds around me, and everything was calm. And then it's almost like he suddenly remembers it all. He's like, it was the Jews from Asia Minor, those guys from Ephesus that were yelling at me. And of course, they're not here, but they're the ones who got this whole thing started. They should come explain themselves, but these guys don't have a leg to stand on. Paul has no spokesman. He's got no advocate in the room, right? But he is respectful. He tells the truth. And he does his best to get to the heart of the disagreement. He even leaves open the remote possibility that the Asian Jews may have a legitimate gripe against him. He he just insists they should make that accusation in person. But we're starting to see that for Paul, his outburst in the Sanhedrin that we read before was not a political ploy. Because for Paul, the hope of the resurrection is the central point of his ministry. He didn't yell that out just to get everybody split up and arguing. It is the cause of all the fighting, And it is what he's here to proclaim, but it's because he is convinced that the resurrection is really what divides any room, more than any other doctrine or personal conflict, because even the ones who claim to believe it don't really. Now, does this work as a defense for him? Well, only kind of. I did read that portion just a little bit. Felix doesn't condemn him. He doesn't acquit him either. It's essentially a hung jury, right? Most judges hate hung juries because it means delays and retrials and additional expenses. They're by definition a miscarriage of justice. But once again, Paul ends the day in prison. Not starved or tortured, but still detained, and justice is delayed. And one could argue justice is therefore denied. But is it really? See, one of the most frustrating things, and I touched on this just a bit ago, is that the world often accuses Christians of circumstantial crimes, meaning that trouble seems to follow us, and therefore we must be the cause. And it seems to me like Christians are often charged with the wrong crime, in a sense. I feel like every time I've been in a debate with anybody over my faith, uh, all of those debates have basically looked like me fending off attacks against perceptions, Not the actual central tenets of the faith, but perceptions of us as believers. And we talked about this in Men's Breakfast yesterday, how the unbelieving world really hates the image of us probably more than the reality. The average person does not attack the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord. Have you ever noticed that? They seldom attack any doctrinal point at all. What they attack is what they think the center of our faith is, which is the people. They think we're a social club with some weird rituals and some, you know, odd music thrown in. 
And far too often, I think we set ourselves up for that perception because so many churches become a cult of personality around their leader, around the pastor. We build our leaders up, and when they fail, we disown them and walk away. Or, as Reverend Green pointed out during breakfast yesterday, how many churches plainly advertise that they are family-oriented churches? I would add, look at almost any church website, and you will generally be able to tell who they're trying to reach by the pictures that make the front page. It's the smiling people, the happy people, right? It's the women, it's children, whatever it may be, whoever you're trying to reach. And that's probably better than a picture of the building, especially if it's as ugly as ours in the front, but we're going to paint it eventually. We're going to get to it. But as long as the focal point of the church is the people, the more vulnerable we are to attack because newsflash, people suck. We sin and we hurt each other and we fail each other constantly. We gossip and we slander and we judge each other. This is what we do. And so, again, in a sense, I feel like Paul's emblematic of this because Paul, yes, he's on trial, but not for his real crimes. The fact is he's far worse than any of these guys could possibly imagine. They got him on the wrong charge. This is like holding Al Capone on tax evasion. Paul's a murderer. Paul's a persecutor of the church. How quickly we forget. And God had promised many years ago that Paul would suffer for those crimes. He was going to show Paul how much he needed to suffer for the sake of the name. Rioting? That's the least of it. Paul was once an avowed enemy of the God of the universe. That's bad enough. And I wonder if any of you have ever felt like this, like the world attacks you sometimes and you're mad about it, but you're also kind of glad that they don't know the half of it, right? How many of you have ever wanted an advocate, a spokesman, to represent you and to explain your situation in a more favorable light? I think we all feel like that sometimes. I feel it every week. I mean, I get paid to talk, essentially, I feel like, but even I run out of words, and sometimes I wish that somebody else would come along and make my case for me, especially if I feel attacked or outnumbered or weak or like a failure. Defending yourself is exhausting work. But John the Apostle, the one who says he's the one who Jesus loved, he says in his first epistle that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And that's good news for us, and it was good news for Paul too. And I think that's why Paul does not walk into this courtroom seeking earthly justice, and he doesn't come in proud, and he doesn't come in arrogant, and he doesn't come in with these pie-in-the-sky hopes of getting released either, but he doesn't come in angry, and he doesn't come in afraid. What does he do? How does he fight an unfair fight? He respects the earthly authorities without flattery or defiance. He tells the truth without any embellishment. And perhaps most importantly, he gets to the point. And the point for him is that what he says is this is about the resurrection. Not just in theory, but in reality. Jesus is alive, and that changes everything. If the resurrection is not true, nothing matters. But if it is true, nothing else matters. And people may not openly attack the doctrine of the resurrection. They may even claim to believe it in some theoretical sense. But unless someone paved the way, unless someone became the first fruits of the resurrection, we have no basis to hope in it. Because it would remain purely theoretical. So Paul knew that the resurrection was the key. And he believed it because he had seen it. He had met Jesus. 
Paul was not actually defenseless. Paul did have an advocate, the same one who visited him in his cell in Jerusalem last week. He has a lawyer, and not some sleazy Italian. He's got the best Jewish lawyer of all time, the only one who knew the law and kept it, the only one who can represent you in the highest court, and the only one who could ever get you off the serious charges that you're actually guilty of. Paul could fight in an unfair fight in Felix's courtroom without any stress and without any worry because he had a lawyer where it counted. And today, you and I are called to fight fair in an unfair fight sometimes. And we do that by respecting the authorities, telling the truth, and focusing away from us and onto Christ. Not because the system is fair, but because we have an advocate and we have the hope of the resurrection. And that's where the tension with the world comes from. Paul saw that. They don't really believe in the resurrection because if they did, nothing else would matter. And what Paul sees is that the people of this world have no hope. So Paul didn't fear the tension. He explained it and got to the heart of it because the hope was not rooted in him but in the risen Lord. We all need an advocate. Amen? And thanks to the resurrection, there is one available. And even though the world is full of Tertullus's and they're not that impressed with our attorney, that's all right. You just keep fighting fair, knowing who's in your corner. You be respectful, you be truthful, and you focus on the reason for your hope. May not win you friends. I saw a quote this week floating around by Ed Welch on Facebook said, You were unacceptable before God and other people. Now you're acceptable before God, though you might be unacceptable before others. Is that okay with you? Well, I think we can say Paul was okay with it. And I think we should be too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you as always for your word. Lord, it's easy for us to make fun of attorneys, especially if we've seen them in action. Lord, we are thankful for the attorneys. Lord, we know there are quite a few of them that are of your flock as well. But Lord, we thank you that our highest advocate is your son. We thank you that he is with us, Lord. We thank you that he intercedes for us at your right hand. We thank you that by his spirit, he is with us, Lord, even when we are under attack, Lord, and that we don't need to worry and we don't need to try to fight unfair to match the unfair circumstances around us. And Lord, we do recognize that what is dividing us from everybody else is that we really do believe in the resurrection. And again, not just in theory, but in practice, Lord, because of what Jesus accomplished, because he is risen, because he is alive and at your right hand. Lord, we're thankful for that. We pray that you would give us renewed peace in that knowledge. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.